those three different types of scores, FICO is one of them. And the way they calculate it is it's 35% based off of your payment history. It's 30% based off of your amount owed. And then the rest is based off of your length of credit history. Before we get into today's episode, I want to offer you a free service and a free gift. Yes, a free gift. You're a loyal best ever listener. You deserve free gifts. And it's from our best ever partner, Secure Pay One, the landlord helper. So are you a landlord or investor who's self-managing? Well, if you're self-managing, is that the best way to scale your business? And are you fulfilled by self-managing or would you rather be doing other stuff with your time? Like, I don't know, scaling your business, scaling your portfolio, making more money, bringing more rentals, rental income coming in because you're acquiring more properties. If you want to scale, if you're not getting fulfilled by self-managing, then here comes the free service. Here comes the free gift. Linda Libatory, you know her, episode 714. I interviewed her about her best ever advice. Talked to her about her company, which is the solution to your problem, Secure Pay One, the landlord helper. They handle the phone calls. They handle the rent collections. They handle late payment reminders. They handle the lease violation notices. Everything from the text messages, reminders, all the way to collecting the ACH payments. Linda's team will help you scale your business, whether you got 500 units or even a handful of units go to mylandlordhelper.com forward slash joe that's mylandlordhelper.com forward slash joe they're going to give you a free 30 minute goal strategy session they'll give you free setup and the first 30 days free mylandlordhelper.com forward slash joe again if you are self-managing and you're not fulfilled by self-managing and you agree that there's a better way to scale your business, scale your investments, then go to mylandlordhelper.com forward slash Joe. Take Linda and her team up on their generous offer of giving you a trial and a strategy session to see if it's right for you. Mylandlordhelper.com forward slash Joe. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any fluff today. Since it's Friday, we're doing Follow Along Friday, joined by the co-host on Follow Along Friday, Theo Hicks. Hello, sir. How's it going, Joe? It's going well. And well, I'm married. You are married. So I'm married. Show, show the video for yep. people watching the ring. Yep. Got the ring. Got the bling. So on Follow Along Friday, if you're a first time listener, well, welcome. And if you're a returning listener, you know that this isn't about what we got going on in our lives. Doesn't really matter about that, right? It's about what we're doing in our lives as real estate entrepreneurs that can then be relevant to you. So what we're noticing through our experiences and how we can apply that to what you've got going on to ultimately help you. That's what this is all about. So we've got a jam-packed show today. It's going to be a lot of fun. We've got a new high-profile guest that's going to be interviewed on the show. We got some closings. We got some other wedding observations that are relevant to real estate. Theo's closing on some deals soon got some mm-hmm. updates on that so theo take away how should we get started yeah let's start with our deal updates i'll start with mine so if you've been listening i've got three four unit properties under contract and we were scheduled to close the first week in july and that's been pushed back to one week and this kind of leads into my mistake of the week which is from my perspective not taking enough initiative for the deal 
The reason why we are delayed is because, I guess technically speaking, is because our lender needs information from the listing agent and the seller because we know they've got all of our information and we've been on top of that. But I was not on top of the information they're getting from the listing agent and the seller. And kind of throughout the deal, we've run some issues with the listing agent when it came to the inspection. Set an inspection like three hours late or two hours late. I still haven't seen every single unit because every time we go there, the keys don't work. And so I've been there three times and every time before I go there, the keys are supposed to work and they don't work. And so there's been some frustrations on my end, but I try to figure out what is it that I can do? What is this my control that I can do in order to kind of mitigate any of these issues moving forward? So one of the main ones is kind of issues on the listing agent's seller side, specifically when it comes to giving information to my lender. I guess they need you know LLC information and, and leases and things like that. And so that's the process I'm going to implement from deals moving forward is that I'm going to have either on a weekly basis or maybe even like every two or three days, I'm going to just annoy my lender and say, hey, what information do you need from me? What information do you need from the listing agent? What information do you need from my agent, from the seller? And the interests aren't necessarily aligned for anyone but me. I'm the one that's going to be buying these deals. I'm the one that wants them to close on time. Mm-hmm. The listing agent doesn't really care. They get paid regardless. My agent doesn't really care because they get paid regardless. And so really, I'm the only person that truly has, I guess, skin in the game. Maybe the seller too, but they seem to not really necessarily care either when the properties get sold. So moving forward, my process can be, you know, every two days up to five days, I'm going to reach out to my lender and see what they need. And if they need anything from the listing agent, I'm going to be the one that's going to be bothering them or at least bothering my agent to be bothering them. Is your earnest money at risk because it's being delayed and it's your lender's fault, ultimately? I don't think so. So you mean, will my earnest money not be applied to the loan just because well, of Well, are you at risk of not being within the time frame of closing in the contract? I guess that's the real question. Yes, so we're filing an extension. So right now, we're still in the time frame of an appraisal contingency. Could we okay. put a contingency in there that the property's in appraise? And that could be a way out. And so once we get past that, we need to write an extension and the argument we're going to use is that it has nothing to do with me or yeah. our, I mean, again, I, I want to take responsibility so it does have to do with me that I wasn't taking the initiative, but in reality, um, it's because the lender wasn't getting the information from the sellers. And I, guess, so. I guess where I'm going with it is if the seller has found a new offer that's above and beyond what you're offering and they're looking for ways to get out of it, therefore they're dragging their feet, is there a way that this approach could be effective for them and then they don't sign the amendment. It definitely could be because we've been thinking, because whenever they do something where it's like, why are they being so weird about this? I guess another example I can think of at the top of my head. They reached out to my listing agent a couple weeks after we were on the contract and they were getting mad at her because they thought that we had sent out a roofer to look at the roof. And then they mentioned in this conversation that they have all these other offers that they have. And I don't believe they can just pull out for no reason, but they could not sign the extension. So we'll see so what happens. If that happens... Worst case, if they don't sign the extension, can you still close within the time frame? I guess it's up to the lender if they can close it on time, but we're not necessarily sure about that. So I might start lining up some backup option with hard money or something, because I wouldn't want that to be a surprise. They've intentionally been doing I think the worst of people initially, but in contracts, you really got to make sure that you are thinking what would be the worst case scenario. The worst case is they delay for whatever reason. Maybe there are clauses in the contract where they didn't perform what they're supposed to perform. They didn't provide the information that's listed in the contract. And mm-hmm. that's the case there in default of their contract. And so then, but 
you obviously don't want to go down that road. Yeah. When the lawyers are involved, no one wins. Well, what's going to be interesting, a second thing that's come up, I think I talked about this on the show before, but we've got three properties in their contract, we're only closing on two, and it's supposed to be the first week of July, now it's most likely to be pushed back to the second week of July, but this third property, just because of the way they underwrite the deal, we have to push that closing back two or three weeks. So we need to get a contact extension on that as well. So it's going to be interesting. And I think what you said about lining up secondary lenders is a really good idea, and I need to look into that after the show. Yep. Cool. Good stuff. That's my massive mistakes. As far as my mistake goes, it ties into, well, we closed on a deal yesterday. Congratulations. Yeah. And how many is that so far? Ten. Ten deals. Ten. We got ten. Ten deals. A little over $170 million worth of apartment communities that my business partner and I have ownership in with our investors. Mm -hmm. So the mistake is that we're supposed to close last Friday, June 23rd, and in the email Mm -hmm. to investors, it was written last Friday because I was getting married the day before, I had family over, so we had the email written, that way I could just hit send Mm -hmm. in MailChimp. You have to actually write the email. Well, that email assumed the closing date of June the 23rd, and in the email there's a link to an investor FAQ document, and in the document it answers questions that they might have after closing, like when's the first distribution, when will we receive our K-1s for taxes? What type of reporting should I expect? These have been answered in one-off conversations, but we like having it in one document. And in one of the things that we put in there is, when will the first distribution be? Mm-hmm. And we had in there, since we closed on June 23rd, your d- distribution will be from June 23rd through July 31st because it will be prorated and that will be at the end of August. Well, we didn't close on June 23rd. We closed on June 28th. So we just had to go back and do a little sticky note Mm -hmm. on that PDF after it was sent out. So I'm sure some of them were like, wait a second, we just got closing on June 28th, but this document says June 23rd. And that's just because we didn't go back and pay attention to the details after the initial thing was written. So administrative lack of oversight on our part, but not a huge deal, Mm -hmm. but something that nonetheless, it was a mistake, makes us look sloppy. And now when closings are delayed, we're gonna pay more attention to, okay, wait a second, we already did this document, this has implications, and now it's fixed. If anyone that thinks like, oh, that's a small mistake, why are you worrying about that? It kind of reminds me of the life coach, Trevor McGregor's success ladder and how he talks about going from from outstanding to extraordinary is like, one inch. It's mm-hmm. like the attention to, to details that go from outstanding to extraordinary. So that's kind of where we're at right now in that ladder. We want to push to that top rung. Agreed. So those are mistakes. Transitioning, so you obviously mentioned that you got married, so congratulations yes. on that. Yes, thank you. Because the wedding was amazing. It was a good time. Mm-hmm. And Well, most importantly, we wanted you to have a good time. Yes. <laughs> I'm, glad that that, I'm glad that that happened. <laughs> and you're really good at pulling lessons, like life lessons and business lessons out of events. And so you essentially were able to find a lesson from the wedding and, and other people's weddings and kind of comparing it to, to real estate. So do you kind of want to kind of go through yeah, that? Yeah. And I'd say the lesson found me. And so Colleen and I are married. 
we changed our Facebook update and said, hey, we're married and tons of people like it, you know, two, three hundred people like it, comments. It's great. And it's a celebration, as it should be, of two people coming together. And then I see later that evening a post from one of my friends. I'll just read the post. Today marks eight years of wedded bliss with my sweet Joshua. I am so thankful for every single day we spend together. Happy anniversary, J-Love. I guess that's her pet name. (laughs) J-Love. And her name's Sarah. And I noticed that there were 39 people who liked that. And then I got to think, well, how many people liked their marriage when they originally made the announcement, hey, we're married? How many people liked that compared to eight years of marriage? And I look back, and it was like three, four times as many mm-hmm. liked and commented the congratulations when you got married. And I started thinking, wait a second. Why do we celebrate the initial coming together more than eight years of being together successfully and loving each other? Mm-hmm. And clearly there's a parallel with deals in real estate. Why do we celebrate a lot more when we close than when we do a cash out refinance or when we deliver on investor projections annually? Why not celebrate those a lot more? I got looking at someone else's because coincidentally there was someone else who posted the same thing about an anniversary. This one is from my friend Monica. It's a picture of her and her husband. Happy two years, my love exclamation mark, time flies, anniversary, and 32 people liked it. And then I went back on the timeline of Facebook when they announced it, married to Adam, over 100 people like that. So why do we celebrate that more than when we actually have a successful relationship? I don't know. I don't have the answer other than perhaps the coming together is a new event and once it's not new anymore then the shine wears off from an outsider standpoint therefore it's not as new and sexy novel thank you yeah but really we should be celebrating more when we have time into something so congratulations to sarah and josh to adam (laughs) and monica And congratulations to me and Colleen for getting married. And I don't want to trivialize that, but I do want to call that out that that tends to be human nature. And I believe it's freaking backwards. I believe we should celebrate more the milestones, anniversaries, the successful deals that are delivering on our projections. And people are going to be like, eh, it's a little weird when you celebrate two years worth of cash flow from a deal. But that's really what we should be celebrating. The more people I interview who are playing at a three times, four times higher level than I am, the more they're like, you know, it's less about actually getting the deal. It's more about what do you do after you have the deal. Mm -hmm. There's a book called The Happiness Hypothesis by, I got his face in my head, my mind, but I can't remember what his name is. And I think this uh, relates to this. He basically talks about how to become happy. And he kind of puts forth this hypothesis as to how to become happy and why people are not happy. And the analogy that he used, it's like a spectrum. And like the top is like the maximum happy you can be, and the bottom is the saddest you can be. And obviously the spectrum is basically infinite, and you have some range on that spectrum where you're at, and the middle is kind of like your default 
point. Mm-hmm. And whenever something new happens, for instance, you get married, it's like your default happiness is here, you get married, and you skyrocket above your entire range if you've never been before, because this whole new event, and that's why it's super exciting. And when that happens, it kind of brings up your entire range higher up, so that now that you being married is kind of like, you know, at first it was this novel, amazing experience, whereas now it's, from your psychological perspective, it's like, okay, you know, this is just mm-hmm. normal, which is when the anniversaries comes now at your new, your new default position. And I guess the same thing could be with, with deals, too, because we think about it, when you did your first deal, you were like, this is amazing, this is crazy. Now you've got 10, and the 10th deal feels a lot different than the first deal. Maybe, I'm assuming it does. And that's because when you did your first deal, it was here. It's the same. All the deals are in the same spot on this happiness spectrum, but your range was lower. So at first, your range was here with the happiness of the deal being up here, but then now your range is up here. Anyone who's actually listening to this is probably going to have no idea what I'm talking about. For people listening, I move my hands up and down for range. But yeah, it's basically as time goes on, as you experience new things, uh, new events, marriage, new deals, new job, your range on the happiness spectrum moves up or down, whereas the events kind of are at the same spot on the actual fixed spectrum that everyone gets to work with. So that's just maybe an explanation as to why that happens. Yeah, that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. So... One thing, and the last point on this, and we'll move on. One thing that it reminds me of is the interview that I did yesterday with someone. And I forget the gentleman's name, but when the interview comes out in a couple months, it will be obvious. He's in Huntsville, Alabama. He's a broker. He's like the second or third leading brokerage. And he's been around for five years, just doing 700 deals a year. And he talked about being goal-oriented versus growth-oriented. When we're goal-oriented, then we have the highs and lows of accomplishing things. But when we're growth-oriented, that's the way to be because then we're continuing to grow and grow and grow and we're celebrating along the way as we're growing. Goal would be just peaks and valleys, peaks and valleys, whereas growth would be you're continuing to climb up the mountain. And that's when we have the growth-oriented mentality, then I don't think we would, perhaps we put as much emphasis on, say, a wedding or a closing, but we would also put more emphasis on a one-year, a two-year, a three-year anniversary. We would celebrate others who are getting those as well. And same with a deal closing and then successful year one, year two, year three. Mm -hmm. So, cool. I think that's a good concept. So moving forward, we've got a couple of questions from listeners. One of them is in regards to how to improve their credit scores. They want to become an investor and they are trying to figure out how they can improve their credit scores so they're able to get a loan because they've been rejected from a few loans. And the person that asked his name is Gregory. And so I actually got my real estate license. One of the courses we took was on real estate financing. And one of the days in class, we talked about kind of how they calculate their credit score. And as an agent, you have working with your clients to help them bump their credit score up. I took a few notes that we can go over today to help answer anyone who's having this issue. And so this is specific to the FICO score. So there's three different types of scores. FICO is one of them. And the way they calculate it is it's 35% based off of your payment history. It's 30% based off of your amount owed. And then the rest is based off of your length of credit history. And so you can kind of look at that and see what can I do in order to make sure that I am performing well in all three of those categories. And so some of the advice that I found actually came from FICO themselves of how to do well in these categories. In regards to the payment history, it's pretty self-explanatory. Just make sure you pay your bills on time. So make sure that you know you either set a notification in your calendar. That's what I do. I have a, a calendar entry that says, hey, my credit card is due these days, and so I pay them. 
And so that's payment history. That one's pretty self-explanatory. That's 35%, so one of the biggest chunks. The second one is amount owed, so that's 30%. And so from that perspective, you want to make sure that your overall balance compared to your credit limit is low. If you have a $10,000 credit limit, you don't want to have it sitting at $10,000 constantly throughout the month because that'll negatively affect your credit score. And in order to do that, you want to make sure you're actually paying off the cards and not doing balance transfers. When you log into your credit card website, you see that massive special 0% for 24 months of, of balance transfer. Because you do that, you still have the debt is still in your credit history. It's just move from a different credit card. You don't get hit with interest, but you're still being affected negatively in regards to credit. Something else, I remember I was told a while ago, but I didn't necessarily know what it affected, but it's when you have a credit card you're not using and you close it, thinking that that's going to somehow positively affect your credit score, where it actually negatively affects it because they don't know why you're closing it. I've heard that you can send it back. If you want to close your account, put it in a, an envelope and actually send it back to the credit card company so they know why you're closing. It's not because you, it got stolen or because you can no longer afford it. But at the core of this article, they recommended just not doing that at all. And finally, this kind of has to do with third one, which is the length of credit history. But it also has to do with the amount owed is don't open a bunch of new credit cards. If you want to extend your balance and you think, oh, I'm just going to you know, open up a new credit card in order to you know, have more money, that also negatively affects your credit score. Temporarily. Temporarily, you, yes. Temporarily. I mean, one thing when you do open up a new credit card, because you should have some credit cards to help with the credit score, mm-hmm. I like to not have the annual fees. If you don't have an annual fee and it's just a credit card that's open with a line of credit, then no harm, no foul. But if you have an annual fee credit card, which I have a couple at this point because I use it for business and it makes sense to have them, I think. I don't know. I haven't really looked into that much. <laughs> um, then when you have credit cards, just try not to have an annual fee. Yep. No, no definitely no annual fee. I remember my mom always harped me on that when yeah. I had regards. Uh, there's two additional tips that I have that I just, from my perspective, that I use because I have a really good credit score. Because I've had a card since I was 18 years old and I've, mm-hmm. I've always paid it on time. My parents helped me out with that. So it's not all on me, but I have a really good credit score. And one thing is an application called Mint, M-Y-N-T, I think, or M-I-N-T, one of the two. I've heard of Mint, M-I-N-T, the financial website. Yes, financial website then. You basically are able to connect all of your credit cards to your credit cards, your, your house, whatever, anything that you're paying to one central location. And it'll, at the end of the month, kind of give you a breakdown of your budget, what you're spending money on. So it helps from a budgetary perspective because obviously I'm assuming one of the main reasons why people are having credit card issues is because they're kind of... Yes. Not very financially responsible. And then the... Or just in a tough spot and have to... Yeah. Stop the bleeding with credit cards for whatever reason. I think the second thing I wanted to mention was having some sort of like alarm or or calendar entry to remind you to pay your credit card. Because I know for me personally, if I didn't have that, I always forget. I'm like, oh crap, I got to pay him today. (laughs) So those are my two additional pieces of advice on top of that. I used to use Mint.com 10 years ago or something. I, I liked it for what it is. And now I have a bookkeeper, and then I have an account with some credit score company so that I can always log in and see what my credit score is. So. Sorry, I forgot to mention. The third thing I wanted to mention was, this is something that helps me a lot, is that when I use my credit card, I make sure that I have enough money in my debit account when I'm using the credit card. So I actually use the credit card specifically for building on my credit, but I make sure that, okay, if I'm going to buy $100 of the books... Do I have $100 in my mm-hmm. account so that I can cover it at the end of the month? Because, you know, in the beginning, sometimes I'd be like, oh, well, you know, this is it's so interesting that you can just swipe this card and just kind of get whatever you want. 
without necessarily having that money at the time. You can say, oh, I'll get it in a month or two from now. But I try to make sure that no matter what, when I spend money with my credit card, I have the money in my account. That's as simple as just checking your balance every week yeah. and using Mint to help you keep track of all that stuff. Cool. All right, so another about credit card. Let's go back to the multifamily syndication stuff. So we got a, one final question from Dave, who's a listener. I'm picking my computer because I can't read that far. The question is regarding the financing side of deals. So on your deals, you mentioned that you generally tell investors that they will be investing for five to seven years. What do you do with your investors after this point, and how does the deal look after that? What do I do assuming that we sold it or it went longer than five years? I think what he's saying is what do you do with your investors after the deal is over? Oh, well, our goal is to do a 1031 exchange from one property into another. We can't guarantee that because I don't know what the future holds, but that is our goal. If we don't do a 1031 exchange where they would carry over from one deal to another, or if we have one and they choose not to do that, then just like any investment, they take their money out, get a long-term capital gains tax that needs to be paid, and that's it. That's the end of the deal. Okay. That's a follow-up question. You basically answered it, but he says, are you taking five to seven-year loans on these deals and then planning to refinance and pay out your investors at a time of maturity, or will they remain invested in the deal? That's a great question because what that hits to the core of is how do you set it up with investors? And there's an interesting point there that you asked about, Dave, where when we do a refinance, do we then cash out the investors or do they remain in the deal? In our deals, they remain in the deal. That is not the way to make the most amount of money in syndication, though. The way to make the most amount of money, in case you're curious, Dave, or any best ever listeners listening, is when you do a refinance, you cash the investors out, and then you hold on to the property. And then, holy cow, you just increase the value of the property to a certain degree, and now you've cashed out the investors. Now you own this property with your business partner mm-hmm. 100%. That's the big time way to build your wealth. Now, there are a couple downsides, and there's really one main downside, and that is it's not as appealing to investors. Because basically it is a debt financing play for investors instead of equity where they have the upside potential. Debt meaning they're investing for, say, two years, and you're probably have some clause in the contract where after you reach a certain return to them, plus their money back, then they're cashed out. Mm-hmm. And I haven't presented that opportunity, that type of structure to my investors, but I suspect there would be a large portion of my investors who are like, wait a second, we've been getting upside on these deals and I love the refinance and then I still maintain my same ownership. But now you're saying when we refinance, I'm exiting out of the deal. And people do that, but we haven't structured it that way. So to summarize, if you want to make the most amount of money and build the most wealth to multifamily syndication, then structure your deals the way I don't structure my deals. And that is cash out your investors on a refinance and then own the whole thing yourself. It likely will be more challenging to raise money that way because you're dealing with a different type of investor, but you also might find some investors that only want their money in for two Mm -hmm. years 
and are only looking for, say, a 12% or so annualized return. Okay. Well, that answers Dave's question. The final thing we wanted to mention, as you mentioned at the beginning of the show, is that we've got a, a pretty high-profile guest yes. coming on the show here soon. Yeah. You want to announce it? You can announce it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I'll announce it. Jillian Michaels is going to be on the show. So if you have any questions for her, then email info at joefairless.com. And we will be selecting some questions from the best ever community. So email info at joefairless.com if you have any questions for Jillian Michaels. I am interviewing her on July 11th. Okay. So get your questions in before July 11th. Jillian Michaels. And we're also working on some other high-profile people. But right now we'll focus on her because we're... Looking forward to interviewing her. And then lastly, we didn't talk about basketball real quick. We haven't played in the last two weeks. Yeah, but I Theo yeah, says I he hurt himself or something. I don't know. He knows I've been practicing a lot. <laughs> but are you injured still? Well, no. So I, I hurt my knee, and then I was doing crossfit, and I slammed my elbow on a bolt. Mm-hmm. And so I, my elbow's completely destroyed right now. It doesn't look swollen at all. Uh, it doesn't look swollen, but it feels swollen, that's <laughs> for sure. All right, so we haven't played. No one won, and I didn't lose basketball, but no. <laughs> so when we do play, so we're not playing today? I cannot play today. We're not no. playing today, so forget the basketball thing. Best ever listeners, hope you enjoyed this. Have a wonderful rest of the week, and we'll talk to you soon. Are you an investor who self-manages, talks to your residents, collects checks, and handles all the day-to-day tasks? Well, there's a better way, best ever listener, and guess what? That better way is Secure Pay One. Secure Pay One the landlord helper will have conversations over the phone with your residents whenever there's an issue and the residents can pay you directly. So schedule your free trial and 30-minute session today at mylandlordhelper.com forward slash Joe. That's mylandlordhelper.com forward slash Joe. Ready to bring your real estate investing dreams to life? Learn how to get focused, gain momentum, and the proven roadmap to make it happen with the Time for Investing Masterclass. Doors for enrollment are now open. Reserve your spot today with Neva at Neva, N-E-V-A, at timeforinvesting.com.